0: Let's go places. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz podcast. My guest today is the one and only Linda Ronstadt, who has a brand new book, Feels Like Home. Linda, good to have you on the podcast.
3: Oh, thank you for including me.
0: Okay, so what was the uh, inspiration for the book?
3: Well, I I made a trip with Lawrence Downs, who writes for the New York Times, and um, he was doing a travel piece on me, some place that I would like to explore. And I said, let's do it on the Sonoran Desert because it exists on both sides of the border, and we can make a trip to Mexico and go visit the little town where my grandfather was born. And he wrote a travel piece about that, and then. Um, we decided, I, when I was in Bonamichi, that little town, the Mexican town where my grandfather was born, I was thinking about my gra- great-grandmother. And I was sitting in the plaza, looking across the plaza to the church, and realized that that's where she would have taken him to be baptized, and she started her married life in Bonamichi. And then I thought, I'd like to know more about my great-grandmother, and I'd like to write about her. So I, um, I asked Lawrence if he wanted to write about our trip to, to Mexico. We made some return trips and explore Sonoran culture through the eyes of my great-grandmother down through the generations to the fifth generation in Tucson.
0: When you were growing up, did your family discuss this history or did you have to research it?
3: No, they kept letters. I had to find the letters. They were at the Arizona Historical Society. I was lucky that we found letters because there would be no other way to know my great grandmother. My my father talked about her a little bit and said she was nice. She was certainly pretty, but um, she dried fairly young.
0: Okay, so uh, in the book it talks about how your family ultimately comes together. There was a uh, relative who came from Germany and ultimately married a woman in Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Well, Friedrich August just came from Germany. He was my great-grandfather. And he, was, he had been in the military in um, Austria, where he came from, or Germany. And so he became a colonel in the Mexican army. But he was also the first mining engineer in the region. And so he was the one that ran all the mines. That's a very rich mining area, silver and gold and copper. And um, he was also the, ran the Hacienda of General Pescada, who he was his colonel. General Pescada is credited with driving the French out of Sonora, the state of Sonora. So he was, and he had his own ranches. He married into the Redondo family. They were very influential down there and had a big, huge ranch, thousands of acres that they stole from the Indians. And um, she married him. He was 50 years older than she was, I think. But that was normal in those days. The older men were Married younger women because they're, they were widowers. So she was, he was a widower and had five children. And so she started out at the age of 18 with a bunch of kids and an older husband and traveling around to the mines.
0: And how did your family end up in Tucson?
3: They just migrated. Tucson was not that was part of Mexico. He was probably working on a mine up there or something. Oh, I know. My, my grandfather was sent to Apprentice with, with an iron maker, which was a, a relative of his.
0: Now, one thing in the book is you paint the picture of the Sonoran Desert. I don't think the average American really knows anything about the Sonoran Desert. Can you tell us about it?
3: About what? I'm sorry, I missed the middle. About, sentence.
0: about the Sonoran Desert and how really the landscape is the same in Tucson as it is in Mexico across the border.
3: Well, except that it doesn't have saguaros. Those are the cactuses with big arms, grow really high cactus trees. And when you have that, you know that you're in the Sonoran Desert. You know that you're within a few hundred miles of Tucson. It's the only place on earth where they grow. And that's the only difference. When you go south, you have organ pipe cactus instead, but the the region is basically the same. It's the same food, the same, same music, same intellectual culture going on. There's a lot of a lot of the Mexican Revolution was for, from, formed in Sonora.
0: So your family ended up owning a uh, uh, a hardware store. Can you tell us about the evolution of that?
3: Well, my grandfather was sent. North iron Ironwork and he started building wagons. He built the best wagons and carriages in the area. And um uh that went naturally into owning a hardware store. If you wanted a good tools or a windmill or a good tractor for your farm, you'd go to my grandfather. There. My father worked in that store too.
0: Now you say the store ultimately closed. Can you tell me about that and how sad that was?
3: Well the big box stores like Home Depot came in and they just out competed them with lower prices. They also had lower quality. I'd rather go into my father's hardware store. It took up a whole city block, but it wasn't I didn't have the feeling like the big box stores. It wasn't full of plastic junk.
0: So we so when you grew were growing up, did you hang out at your father's store?
3: Yeah, I used to hang out there a lot. I take the bus from school and go over there. It all smelled like diesel oil. It was really beautiful. It had great things in there. Fishing equipment, hunting equipment, digging equipment.
0: So did you used to play around stuff? Did you break stuff or were you a pretty good kid?
3: Yeah, uh, I used to, I was good. You didn't break anything at my dad's store. It was all made of metal. But they had a toy department for a while and that was really cool. They had a housewares department too.
0: So did you get a lot of toys since they were in the store more than your friends?
3: No, I got an Madame Alexander doll usually every Christmas. That was pretty cool.
0: Okay, so you're growing up in Tucson in the 50s. You know, is there television? How many stations, radio? Does Tucson feel part of the fabric or does it feel like its own world?
3: Well, we didn't have a television. It felt like its own world when I got to school and found out that everybody else had green lawns and popsicles, popsicle um, trees, lollipop trees that were green. We had a different kind of vegetation. We had different kinds of animals. I thought everybody was like that until I went to school. But I always knew I was Mexican.
0: Have you ever found people putting you down or treating you differently because you were part Mexican?
3: No, they didn't because I had white skin and a German surname. But my best friend got it um if she would speak spanish on the playground she'd be spanked she'd be punished and they experienced she her sister was darker skinned than she was and they kicked her sister out of the community swimming pool because mexicans weren't allowed to swim in it she said well i'm going
0: with her i'm her sister so when you were growing up how good a student were you and were you like uh popular in school were you more of a loner what were you like
3: no, I wasn't alone. I had good friends. The little girl that got kicked out of the pool was my friend. She still is.
0: hmm And were you good in school?
3: No, I was horrible in school. I used to daydream. It was boring. I went to Catholic <laughs> school, and they all they tell is stories of the saints, and I didn't learn arithmetic. I was a good reader, and I've always been a reader, but I, I couldn't do school very well. They were mean to us.
0: What did your parents say about you being bad in school?
3: I wasn't bad in school. I just didn't, I just didn't like it. I mean, I could do the work. I'd, I'd get the books in the beginning of the year and read them all, and they were boring. But I'd read them, and then I didn't have to pay attention.
0: So what was occupying your time growing up?
3: Horses and my pony.
0: So when did you get your first horse? When I was five. When you were With five? Ponies. Did you already know how to ride a horse? I
3: already knew how to ride a big horse, but but I got a pony, and he lasted until I was seven. and Then I got a big horse.
0: Okay, so you had the pony. How would you go out alone? How far from home?
3: Oh, way far, to the base of the mountains. Lived in the middle of the valley. We. It was like having a car when you were five. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, we just left. We'd leave in the morning. We'd come back around 5 o'clock. If we didn't come back at dinner time, someone would go and look for us. But they weren't They were negligent parents. It just was a different world. We had great freedom.
0: Did you ever have any trouble that far from home?
3: I fell off the horse sometimes, but I'd have to walk home.
0: And did you get hurt? Broke my arm. You broke your arm? Tell me about that.
3: Well, I fell off my sister's horse into a hard hard dirt road i broke my arm i was always I bouncing off my horse i just bounced right back on
0: and you know i've broken bones did you immediately know it was broken
3: well i knew it hurt i showed it to my mother and she knew it was broken she took me right to the doctor
0: and did you get a cast and have all your friends sign their names
3: yep did that exactly
0: uh-huh Now, one other element of the book is you include recipes. You know, one of the great things you put is you have a recipe for refried beans. And as long as I've been living in California, which is uh, basically half a century, I did not know that that didn't mean that they fried them twice. So tell us about refried beans.
3: They don't fry them twice. That's a misnomer, refried. They're boiled and fried
0: once. Right. I didn't, I learned that in your book. So, Growing up, did you eat Mexican-style food in the house, or was it more Anglicized?
3: Oh, we had fresh tortillas and um, tamarindo, which there's a recipe for in the book. It's made out of tamarind beans, boiled tamarind beans. It's more thirst-quenching than iced tea. It's delicious. We always had that in the refrigerator. We always had a pot of beans on the stove.
0: Who made the tortillas?
3: Amalia, the woman that worked for us.
0: And that's a big point in the book that uh, that sonoran tortillas are thinner and larger than what many people are used to.
3: You can see through them there's they're paper thin and they're delicious. They make them with really good wheat, which they grow in Mexico, which they don't they can't grow in huge amounts anymore because the Americans under, undercut the wheat prices and sold the genetically modified wheat. So now they grow that for a cash crop. but if you know somebody you can still get the good wheat.
0: Okay, and so, uh, as I say, there's a number of recipes in the book. If I took you out for your favorite meal, Sonoran style, what do you like most? Oh, tortillas and beans. So, you're living in Tucson, and you make a big point that the whole family is singing together. And do you remember that from a young age?
3: We used to have parties, and music would start... Around ten o'clock, and go on till midnight usually. But everybody in my family can play or sing or do something. Not not professional level. My dad would grill some meat, and my mother would make us big salad. And there would be roasted chilies and roasted uh, different roasted peppers and different vegetables that were growing around, a lot of cilantro and chopped onions. You can't learn how to cook from my book. It's just it's not really a cookbook. It's just. Um, I included the recipes because the food is part of the culture. It's part of the unusual things that you can get in in Sonora that you can't get anyplace else.
0: So how has it changed since you lived there as a kid?
3: Oh, the developers got hold of the government and let them do completely indiscriminate development. So it's causing a lot of erosion. We're getting dust clouds like the Dust Bowl in Arizona. I drove to Phoenix once and I was two hours in dust.
0: And you say in the book you had a house up in in Tucson until recently. When did you have a house in Tucson? Um,
3: 1993, 1994, until a couple of years ago. I lived there for about 15 years.
0: And what made you decide to uh, have a house there?
3: I wanted to go back home, (laughs) and I did. I, I still had friends there and plenty of family.
0: What was it like going back as an adult? I mean, I'm from the East Coast. I live on the West Coast, and I think about what I miss. But, you know, when you actually do it after living in the city in California, you know, is it cognitive dissonance, or do you feel right at home? No,
3: it was just being pissed off because the developers had ruined so much of the desert, and they caused the air quality to, to to be very bad because there's tiny, small particulate matters that floating around in the you have the most sparkling clean skies. Last two times I went there, I was there for ten days and I never the dust haze never went away. It's serious when you interfere with the with the nature's vision of the desert. Because there's plenty of life in the desert. As soon as you hit, take a bulldozer to it, you make it into a wasteland.
0: And how did you decide to ultimately sell your house and move back to California?
3: Well, I wanted to put my kids in in San Francisco schools, they were getting a lot of, what church do you go to, and, oh, that's so gay. I was getting homophobic remarks, and if you're not a Christian, you're going to go to hell, remarks. So I the school system is better here, the public schools are better, the private schools are better. So I brought them over here and put them in the most liberal school I could find.
0: And why San Francisco?
3: It has better air than Los Angeles. <laughs>
0: well, California is a big state. You know, you lived in LA for a long time. What's the difference between San Francisco and LA? I
3: don't have to live in a car culture in San Francisco. The Places you can walk to has more of a sense of community. And people are doing it in LA. They're moving out to um, Silver Lake and those areas east of east LA, which had were, which were originally built around a a culture that, valued pedestrians over cars
0: and did you have enough friends in san francisco or you made them when you once you got there
3: oh i had lots of friends in san francisco
0: and at this stage in your life are you very social or you're more of a loner homebody
3: i stay home with my family I have, a, I have a daughter and a son
0: so how did you decide to have kids
3: Oh. Somebody came up for adoption, and so I thought I would do it. And then I got another one because I had done it already once before.
0: Was it tough being a single mother?
3: I had a lot of help.
0: Okay. And what was the most rewarding part of having kids?
3: Oh, I don't know. Maybe watching my daughter sing a really complicated musical Mexican song, sort of letter perfect. I'd passed on something.
0: So you're living in Tucson in the 60s. You're singing uh, Mexican songs. At what point do you start hearing the hit parade, whether it be folk songs or popular songs?
3: I got that from the radio in Tucson. We had radio stations. You could get anything. You could get XERF, Del Rio, Texas. And the local stations played the top 40. So I heard all that stuff on the radio.
0: And were you, like, addicted to the radio?
3: Well, I played it all the time in the car. At home I played records. But I was a folky for the sixties.
0: Right. Well the folky, there were you know, we even had a folky TV show, Hoot Nanny. But of the uh of the acts back then, whether it be Dylan, the Kingston Trio, Pete Seeger, who were your favorites?
3: Pete Se- Pete Seeger.
0: Pete Seeger. So you're in Tucson. You leave at age 18. How do you decide to leave?
3: Well, I heard one of, one of the guys in the Stone Ponies was a friend I was playing music with in Tucson. And he moved over to L.A. because there were more gigs. And he, he sent me a letter. said, if you come over, you would be my girl singer. We can form a band. I know a good guitar player. So I did. And we formed the Stone Ponies. The first person I saw performing, the first people I saw performing when I went to L.A. were Ry Cooter and Taj Mahal. I said, "Oh, they got some really good musicians over here. I think I'll stay."
0: And had you planned to be a professional singer prior to going to LA?
3: Oh, from second grade. Oh, really? Because I couldn't do arithmetic. I said, "It doesn't matter. I'm going to be a singer." I didn't think I didn't think I was going to be a star or anything like that. I didn't think in terms of being famous or being wildly successful. I just thought of wanted to sing.
0: So you got to L.A., and what was it like? Was it culture shock after living in Tucson?
3: No, I, I, it was a musical culture I already knew. We had a small musical world in Tucson, but it was an extension of the same thing with better players.
0: And you said you saw Rai Cooter and Taj Mahal right away. Where did you see them?
3: Uh, at the Ash Grove. And then we went to the trip and, and heard the birds.
0: How about the other acts that uh, were burgeoning, like The Birds? Were you following all those acts, too?
3: Oh, so I was a huge fan of The Birds. I knew Chris Hillman from Bluegrass. I knew him as a bluegrass uh, mandolin player. I thought, well, Chris, Chris Hillman's playing folk rock. I guess we can, too.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
2: UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with the revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world. To bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure
1: starts. Learn more at UCSD.edu. Okay, quick math.
0: Let's just go back a chapter. You're into folk songs. The Beatles come on the radio. Was that transformational for you?
3: No. I didn't pay attention. I was too much into folk music than to pay attention to the Beatles. I got more into the Beatles when I moved to Los Angeles.
0: And, but you ultimately are a big Beatles fan, or that was just part of the fabric?
3: Well, I'm a fan of good songwriting and good craft, and they have plenty of that.
0: And how about the Rolling Stones? I like them. And the rest of the British invasion, everybody from Freddy and the Dreamers to Jerry and the Pacemakers to Herman's Hermits.
3: Like
0: zombies. Like the zombies, certainly good. Um, So you moved to L.A. And at what point do you ultimately decide and work and get a record deal?
3: Well, we played a little clubs little folk clubs there were a lot of them then in those days you could earn while you learn and then we played an audition at the troubadour and we got the gig and i thought if i ever got to headline at the troubadour that would be the pinnacle of success so i um i got to play i got to headline at the troubadour and found out it wasn't the pinnacle of success But i didn't care
0: and did you have a straight gig how were you keeping yourself alive at this point
3: just by singing
0: Just by singing. So you never really had to, you know, be a waitress or anything like that?
3: No, I never had any other job but singing.
0: Wow. And so other than singing with the Stone Ponies, would you uh, sing with other groups or do studio sessions or anything like that?
3: No, I didn't do that. I, I hung out with friends and played music. At the Troubadour, I met John David Souther and Glenn Fry and Don Henley and
0: all these people. How did you meet those guys?
3: He walked up to me and said he wanted to date.
0: Wow. So how did you get the first record deal?
3: We played the Who It is the Tributor to audition. And on the way out, Herbie Cohen, who was a manager in the business, took me by the arm and took me over to Dan Tana's, the restaurant next door, and said, I can get your girl singer record, record contract. I don't know about the band. So that was me with no 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 material of my own i just sang what i learned from bobby kimmel who was the writer in our band I sang his songs so i said no we had to use the band and then the second album we had a big hit but the stone ponies didn't play on it and kenny was a discouraged with the music and went off to india to study something he came back much improved by the time he came back, I was I was established as a solo artist, and I hired him to be in the band. He was a good friend.
0: So, uh, you have this huge success with different drum. What was that experience like?
3: Well, I didn't like the way the record came out, so I told them they couldn't put it out. It's a good thing they ignored me. It was a big. I mean, it got me on television shows and which I hated playing because the music was all so bad and they got to tell you what to wear and stuff like that. I didn't like it.
0: What did you not like about the recording?
3: I don't know. It was, it was a good arrangement, but I didn't, it didn't sound like the stone ponies to me, but it was my idea to do the song. I thought, I thought it was going to be a hit that song.
0: And how was your experience with Herb Cohn?
3: Well, I liked him very much personally and still do. He's a character. He'll bullshit you but he won't bullshit himself and that's <laughs> sort of. But he he got us wound up in jail. We wound up getting arrested for stolen airline tickets because he bought he'd bought airline tickets from a, a Dicey agency. He didn't know they were stolen. But he knew they were there was something wrong with them because they were so cheap. And he charged Capitol Records for the whole amount of first class flight to hawaii so that made me kind of unhappy i thought that was dishonest and also he didn't understand the nuance in music he didn't understand why i couldn't just go to a town and call the union and hire a band
0: how did your uh relationship with herb come to a conclusion
3: oh well during the depositions he said let's go to lunch and i said okay he said linda this is going to take too much time and energy let's just figure out a number and settle. We settled for $80,000 and kept eating lunch. Then we went to Africa together. He remained a friend.
0: So how did you feel about uh, the sexualized image that capital employed to market your records?
3: I figured they wanted to sell records. There wasn't much I could do about it.
0: And that was fine with you?
3: Well, it was. it wasn't unfine. It just was... Nothing I, I had anything to do with.
0: Well, ultimately you have this gigantic success with, uh, the last Capitol record and the subsequent, uh, Asylum records. And you are, in addition to your talent, you're perceived as a sex object. To what degree did that, uh, affect you?
3: It made me just try to pick the best songs I could try to do the best I could in music.
0: Well, you know, we're living in the Me Too era and uh, people are testifying as to all the aggressive men who crossed the line. Did you have those experiences? Well, I had plenty of those experiences,
3: but I was always protected. You know, I had Peter Asher for my manager, I had John Boylan for a while, and I was protected from stuff like that. I didn't have to deal with the record company.
0: Okay. The book, the new book, Feels Like Home, has a lot of recipes, goes into food. Yet there's a a lot of stars talk about how they're pressured to be skinny. So what was that like when you were a star?
3: I don't know. I weigh ten pounds less than I did in high school. I was thin for a long time, just naturally, and then just naturally I gained weight, and just naturally I lost it again. Women's bodies are made to expand and contract. Mine is very contracted.
0: How did you meet David Geffen?
3: i in the Troubadour.
0: And did he approach you?
3: Well, we had a, com- a friend in common. He he did approach me. We had a friend in common that worked with him. Um, it, was his ro- it was his college roommate in school. He said, you've got to meet my friend David Geffen. He's moving out to Los Angeles, and he'll love you. I said, okay, I'll look for him at the Troubadour. And he came up and introduced him as the friend of this friend of mine, his old college roommate. And he was very charming. We got along fine.
0: And how did you end up being signed to uh, Asylum Records?
3: Well, I had offers from Columbia and Warner Brothers and what was? Albert Grossman. Albert Grossman's label and from David. And John Boylan was advising me then, and he advised me to go with David because the Eagles were already over there and Joni Mitchell and James James Taylor wasn't with me, he was with Peter Asher at any rate, it just seemed like a more natural context for me.
0: And how did JD end up producing the first record?
3: Um, I can't remember to tell the truth. The record wasn't coming out and I enlisted him to help and that record was a mess.
0: Well, the record came out and was not financially successful uh commercially successful was that disheartening
3: i didn't pay attention to things like that
0: so ultimately how do you meet andrew gold and what influence did he have on your music
3: i met andrew gold when i was in the stone ponies and we had a friend that was a teacher at a sort of a tony private school in the valley can't remember the name of it and we went there to, to visit my friend the teachers class, Andrew Gold and Wendy, Wendy Steiner, she's now called Wendy Waldman. We're there in a band, and we thought they were really good. Wendy, Wendy, Wendy Waldman is a really talented singer and oh, songwriter.
0: absolutely! First album, yeah. "Love Has Got Me," unbelievable. I'm friends with Wendy. I'm a big fan.
3: I'm a huge fan too, and I heard her singing the songs from love has got me at her school at her high school. And I thought she was really good. And I thought Andrew was good too. And they eventually formed a band together. But there they were always, Wendy sings back up on my live album that live in Hollywood. That's Wendy and, and, and Kenny singing together. Wendy, Kenny and Andrew had a band and also, um, I can't remember.
0: So, How do you end up working with Andrew?
3: I just hired him to go on the road. I hired him to be my guitar player. Peter Asher was impressed with him too.
0: And whose idea was it to do You're No Good, and how did that come together? It was mine.
3: It was a song we added as an afterthought to the show because I sang ballads all the time and it got boring. So I had to learn a, a tempo song. So I played that for Peter and he liked it. And Peter did very good work on that production. He and Andrew did it together, but it was Peter keeping everything straight. He he did great arrangement ideas, and it was a good-sounding record, I thought.
0: Well, it certainly was. So when the record was done, did you know it was a hit? I thought it was strong. And how did you find the McGuricals' Heart Like a Wheel?
3: I was sitting in a taxi cab with Jerry Jeff Walker about in the morning, the sun was just rising, and I said, I'm looking for songs. I come to New York looking for songs, and we spent the night, we spent the evening at Gary Gary White's house, the guy that wrote Long, Long Time, and um, he said, I know a song you could do. He said, this, these two girls, these two sisters, I'll see them at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, which was in a couple weeks, and she said, they wrote this song called Heart Like a Wheel, and he sang me the first two lines, three lines of Heart Like a Wheel, and I just flipped out. I said, "You go, please tell them they have to send it. And I went home, and about two weeks later, it came to this reel-to-reel tape in the mail. It was McGarrigal's sisters. So they recorded it with a piano and a cello. This just gave me the idea to have a string trio on it.
0: So, and how about uh, When Will I Be Loved? How did you decide to do that?
3: Oh, I heard that from the Everly Brothers.
0: And It Doesn't Matter Anymore?
3: I heard that from Buddy Holly when I was a kid.
0: Well, when you would go to make these albums, what was the procedure in finding songs and ultimately deciding the 10 or 12 that would be on the record?
3: Well, it was always hard to find material because I hadn't found my voice yet. And I didn't really find my voice until 1980. But I was still learning and I was doing the best I could and I chose songs that were inappropriate for me often because there was a lot of singer-songwriters and they write, like Randy Newman writes, for his own voice. It's hard to do his songs until you get really good at it. So the songs that I loved and wanted to sing, I, I wouldn't, couldn't sing very well.
0: So tell me about finding your voice.
3: Well, I started singing better time in my phrasing instead of rushing the time. When I got with musicians that were demanding it body cocktail mainly, and I improved my singing. And then I, I'd always wanted to do a, work in a real theater, and I loved Gilbert and Sullivan. So I was taken to meet Joe Papp by John Rockwell, who's always been a friend and a mentor to me. You know who John Rockwell is, right? For the, for the New York Times, he was the head head critic for years there. Right
0: he and I were he and I were great yep. friends,
3: so he took me to meet Joe Papp, and I said, "I want to sing in a the theater with the curtain because I was tired of singing in arenas and he he said he probably thought I was an idiot, and a month later or so one of his directors came in and wanted to do Gilbert and Sullivan and he said, "But I want to use a pop singer, not a classical singer. so he said, "Oh, I know no one Linda Ronstadt. said she came in she wants to work here." So they called me up and asked me if I wanted the job, but Jerry Brown answered the phone and he remembered he remembered HMS Pinafore because that's the Gilbert and Sullivan show he's seen, and I knew the the whole show of HMS Pinafore because my sister had sung it in junior high school and I'd memorized the whole thing. So I said I I'd love to do Pinafore and they said no it's Pirates of Penzance. Well I didn't know that one, so I had to learn it, and ultimately they let me put a song from from pinafore in there anyway i'm sorry my voice is going out
0: well ultimately you got great reviews but how anxious were you about opening in that show
3: i was wildly keen to do it it had a great cast it was a real ensemble production and and the music is great i got to use my high voice and when i put in my high voice really well it, it It integrated it into the rest of my voice and I could do the standards and after I sang with Nelson Riddle I felt like I knew how to sing
0: so let's go back to some of these earlier records you do love is a rose by Neil Young before he records it so how does that he gave it to me he gave it to you saying what on a demo he said this is perfect for you
3: no he said here's my new demo He was on his way. He had a place in Zuma Beach, which was a little bit farther north than my place in Malibu. He used to drop by on his way up there. And one day he had a bunch of new demos. I said, listen listen to them. And Nicolette Larson was living with me then. And I said, this will be perfect for you, Nikki. And it was a hit for her. So we both recorded Neil Young's songs.
0: Now, also, you did "Roll 'Em Easy by Lowell George. How did you meet Lowell George?
3: I met him in Atlanta. He was playing with, the, with Little Feet. And I flipped over him. I thought he was one of the best singers I'd ever heard, and he's a great guitar player. So he was playing that song, and I said I wanted to learn it. So he came over and taught it to me, but he did it in E-tuning, I think, or I did it in E-tuning. I had to change the tuning for my key. And I learned it on the guitar in my living room.
0: Okay, and then uh, you end up doing the Tattler which is originally on uh, Paradise and Lunch, the Rye Cooter album. How did you end up uh, doing the Tattler?
3: I can't remember. We needed an extra song. It's hard to find 12 songs a year, it's hard to find 12 songs in 10 years.
0: And at this point in time, with this level of success, were people constantly pitching you songs?
3: Um, not really. I mean, people. JD Souther suggested I record "Blue Bayou. That turned out to be fortunate, and we were just hanging out at my house one night, and we were playing songs. And Jackson played "Um Poor Pitiful Me" that he was he was in the studio working with whoever wrote "Poor Pitiful Me," Warren Zevon. And it would be like Jackson to pitch his pitch, pitch his friend's song over his own. He's real generous that way. He was a great admirer of Warren. I'd moved into Warren's apartment when I was living in Hollywood after he lived in it. And I knew him slightly, but I loved his songs.
0: Well, as good as his version of Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me is on his first uh, album, first Asylum album, your version is the definitive version. How did you end up coming, recording Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me?
3: Jackson Brown suggested me at that place malibu there I used to live. We were playing songs and JD Souther was there and suggested Blue Bayou and Jackson was there and he said you could she could sing more pitiful me. So I learned it. I taped it with him singing it. I learned it. I still have the tape.
0: And uh how did you cause you know on Hasten Down the Wind you do multiple Carla Bonoff records uh, songs? How did you meet and find those songs from Carla Bonoff?
3: Well, Carla was Kenny Edwards' girlfriend. We lived together, and Kenny was in my band, so I met Carla.
0: And you mentioned Jerry Brown earlier. How did you end up meeting and getting involved with Jerry Brown?
3: I met him at Lucy's L. Adobe Cafe, where everybody went to eat Mexican food.
0: And ultimately, they had his picture in the front window. What was appealing about Jerry?
3: I'm not sure. (laughs) <laughs> he's he's honest he's a real he's honest with himself he has an amazing sense of humor that nobody knows about but and he was cute
0: and at the time although he was known as governor moonbeam he was governor of california he ended up running for president uh the eagles and other acts did fundraisers you had a front row seat for that what was that like
3: i don't know We didn't go out in public lunch.
0: So, what do you think about the political situation today?
3: I think it's, I'm terrified by it. It seems like there's fascist governments all over the world that are taking over. I think it'll lead to chaos and famine and war and all kinds of things that we can think of. And this Elon Musk character is just nothing but a chaos creator. People think People think that people can people can run a business, which he was not a great businessman, nor was Trump. But they get rich and they think they know how to run the country, and they don't. And they have government-sized budgets to accomplish what evil they want to accomplish. Like like Mao Zedong decided that a huge part of China should be planted to wheat. And it was areas that wheat didn't grow very well in. And it caused a famine that starved millions of people. That's what happens if you get to just be a dictator and say what what's going on. That's what Elon Musk wants.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
2: At UC San Diego, we understand that in order to turn the vast unknown into new cures or human connections or expansive culture, you have to be willing to venture further out. That's why we'll go as far as the International Space Station, with cancer cells in hand and novel medicines in mind. That's why we map the seemingly randomness of forest fires and connect them with revolutionary AI to see where they'll appear next. And it's why we arrive on the San Diego shore from all over the world to bring different perspectives to our world's biggest challenges. When you push the boundaries of science, art, and culture, whole worlds open up. And at UC San Diego, that's where the real adventure starts. Learn more at ucsd.edu.
1: Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious.
0: So it sounds like you follow the news pretty closely. Oh, I do. So how do you you get your information?
3: Mainly from the New Yorker and the New York Times. But I also like um, public television news. Judith, Judith, what's her name? Woodruff. Judy Woodruff.
0: And do you think there's any place, well, let's talk about the evolution. I mean, Musical acts were raising money for politicians back in the 70s. Is there any place for music to change the landscape politically today?
3: I don't have any idea what will go on in the future. Music could be anything. Uh, people of my age always think music is in decline, and I think that to a degree. I'm not very interested in the music that is happening today. There's a couple of good people, there's some really good singers, but Talon doesn't leave the gene, the gene pool. It just gets shaped in drastically different forms by the culture. And I, I think our culture is failing.
0: What In what ways is the culture failing?
3: Well, it's getting less democratic. Truth doesn't matter in in journalism anymore. Nobody cares whether you tell the truth or not. You can just tell a bald-faced lie and people will believe you if they're stupid enough. And that's really concerning to me. And hatred is getting fashionable.
0: And, uh, you know, Trump got elected in 2016. Did you find out some of your close friends were Trumpers or were all? No,
3: no, no friends of mine voted for him. They wouldn't be friends if they did.
0: <laughs> and, you know, we're lucky we live in California, we have Newsom. Do you think that uh, Biden should run for another term?
3: I don't know. You have to ask him. I think he did a really good job. He's gotten legislation through that Republican roadblock that nobody else has been able to do.
0: Well, what I don't like is that the his own team doesn't give him any credit. They're not running on his success. They're just reacting to the Republican attacks. Makes me crazy. Well,
3: he's he's going to go down in history as a real important president, I think. But you know, he's trying it's ageism.
0: So do you believe since he's doing a good job, if he continues to do this job, although if the uh, Republicans take over the house, which is what it looks like is going to happen. um, Do you think that he should serve another term?
3: I don't know. I mean, I don't understand how the the nuances of the presidency work. I'm sure it's a lot of people making deals. Just hope he makes more moral deals. I think he's a moral person. I think he's very smart. I think he's very experienced. But he's a geezer like me. But he's a smarter geezer than I am. And do mine works better than mine.
0: Do you know Newsom? Gavin Newsom?
3: Oh he's very charming and very smart. I think he'd be probably a good president.
0: Well, at least he's, he's,
3: gonna
0: run. he's being aggressive, uh, which I certainly like. And how do you feel about Ron DeSantis's success?
3: I think he's a creep.
0: Well, you know, there's a lot of analysis that says, irrelevant of his political positions, that he's a very cold guy and people can't warm up to him. And you're saying he's a creep. Do you think people can overlook that or do you think it's going to ultimately hurt him? I don't
3: know. I wouldn't be surprised at anything. When Trump announced he was going to run, I was sure he was going to win. And I said, This is the Weimar Republic and it's Germany in the 30s. And Trump is, Trump is Hitler. And the Jews are the new, the Mexicans are the new Jews. he I made mean, that remark about Mexicans being rapists. It's clear where he was going with that. People that demonize groups of people to cover up their own political inadequacies are not new to this. The history of this country but he's he's a champion
0: and if i snap my fingers and you were control of immigration what policy would you want to enact
3: i wouldn't take it on with a 10-foot pole it's so complicated it's the third rail of politics they have got to do something though. there's a lot of suffering down there i've been to the border a lot
0: well you know the fact that they don't have the the uh You know, we have a brain drain with technology. Forget people immigrating. People, you know, from India and other countries come to study here. They used to stay, work at technology companies, but now they leave because of the visa situation. It's insane.
3: I got about a quarter of that. I really am hard of hearing, you know.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Well, tell me, when did, uh, tell me the status of your hearing.
3: I think I've lost about 50% of my hearing.
0: So... Uh, you, did you lose it from age or from loud music?
3: Who knows? could be anything. could be genetics. It could be, I'm sure I lost some hearing. I lost some top end from standing in front of rock and roll bands, but not to the extent, I don't know. Not an in-ear doctor.
0: And when did you notice and start wearing the hearing aids?
3: About a year ago, two years ago. My hearing was a lot better then. Hearing aids suck. I'm sure somebody can invent a better hearing aid.
0: So do you wear them all the time?
3: I wear them when I'm going to talk to somebody like you.
0: So, you know, you've gone through these health issues over the last decade or so. What's the status of your health today?
3: Well, I have Parkinson's disease.
0: And, well, that's a progressive disease, so how are you doing? Well, I'm progressing. So what's it like now?
3: What's it like? It's like having Parkinson's
0: disease. Well, I mean, to what degree is your function, you, you know, you said you can't sing, but to what degree is your functionality impaired?
3: I don't go out a lot, but I've, I've always been a homebody. I don't like groups of more than 10 people.
0: So when you're at home, do you watch streaming television?
3: Sometimes, yeah.
0: Any of your favorite shows you can talk about?
3: Um. I liked a korean show which one i not what it's called the and the impressive or the some superlative lawyer woo
0: extraordinary attorney uh, woo
3: extraordinary attorney woo yeah
0: that's good any other ones
3: Let's see what else have i liked huh. i can't remember
0: and are you a reader rather than the news
3: Oh, yeah, I'm a book. I'm a reader. I'll read last book I read was. Let's see, what is it called? I read three books at once. So one was about called Vagina Obscura, which I recommend to everybody. One was a history of the of fabric, which is a really a good book. It's called Fabric. The woman is a very good writer. She's also written a book about jewels and another book about color, the history of color. Fascinating! It's a great way to learn history. And then I read, I read a book that I think everybody should read. It's called Solito, and it's about a kid that immigrated from El Salvador to Los Angeles as a nine-year-old, all by himself, to find his parents. And it's written from the point of view of a of a nine-year-old child, completely all the way through the book. It's completely fascinating. The guy's a brilliant writer.
0: And how did you find these books?
3: Oh, and reviews. John Rockwell, I read a review of it in the New York Times, and then John Rockwell sent me an email saying I had to read it. I went and bought it, and I read the whole thing through at to, a to sitting. It was really good. I recommend that to everybody. The vagina book, I recommend to everybody, too, men and women. It's really well written, and there's there's such, so many obscure details that you never knew. Like, there have been all these studies on penises, but not on vaginas.
0: <laughs> wow. What do you think about uh the state of sexuality in America today?
3: Well, it's everything goes. I think anything goes. I think that's probably natural.
0: Well, you know, we live in a relatively puritanical society compared to Europe sexually.
3: Oh yeah, it's ridiculous.
0: And grow what was it like growing up for you as a Catholic girl? Well, It's about normal? I mean, did you, were you reluctant to have intercourse? Did you think, you know, uh, you were going to go to hell?
3: That's not a question I'm going to talk about on the radio. I didn't think I was going to go to hell. I was an atheist from third grade.
0: And uh, what about birth control and abortion?
3: I had them both.
0: How many abortions have you had? It's none of your fucking business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, people say it's very difficult to uh, have an abortion emotionally after the fact. Was that your experience?
3: Not true. Feeling of relief. Great relief.
0: And do you ever did you ever subsequent to the abortion think, well, I might have made a mistake, I should have the kid, or never?
3: never it was the right thing to do
0: and so you came of age was the pill around at that point
3: yes it was okay thank god
0: (laughs) so what do you think about uh you know there's a fight over uh trans and other identities or you fall down on uh, the side whatever you want to do or what do you think about uh, the other side's opinion?
3: Oh, let let them be. Let them do whatever they want to do. I know that if you're born with a different gender assignment, there's nothing you can do about it. You have to learn how to work with it. They should be left alone.
0: You know, you've had children. What about all this, you know, with critical race theory and what is taught in the school? Do you think that's just all BS? Or do you think uh, do we have to protect children to some degree?
3: I think they should teach critical race theory. I think everybody from the first grade should learn what the history of Black people were in this in this country, and and get serve it uncut, undiluted. Howard Zinn has a really good history for for children that um tells the truth, but makes it doesn't sugarcoat it, but puts it in a rational context that is not damaging, but it is enlightening. I'm a great fan of Howard Zinn.
0: Going back to LA, sounds like you knew everybody from Jackson Brown to Lowell George. Uh, is that true? Or you just hung with the people you hung with?
3: Well, I met Jackson when he was 17 and I was 16 and no one had ever heard of either one of us. And I just thought he was a good songwriter. And same with JDA, I met him at the Troubadour and we went to my house and he played songs. and I thought he was a good songwriter.
0: And when you use the Eagles, what became the Eagles is your background band. Did you realize they were going to go on to all that success themselves?
3: Oh, I was sure they would. I was sure they would make hits.
0: Okay. And what are your kids up to today?
3: My one daughter is a visual artist and my other son is a um, tech guy.
0: And what does he do in tech? He, he's,
3: you know, when you have a corporation and then they have, all their tech stuff, he runs it. He's in charge. He's the person you go to if your laptop doesn't work or whatever. He's very smart.
0: Do you ever listen to your own records?
3: If I need to check something, like I'm trying to figure out how to make my hearing aid work, my headphones. So I listened to several different, I listened to Paul Simon's record, Graceland. I listened to some records that I produced of mine. To see what I can see, because I know what those records sounded like when they were made and I can tell what's missing and there's a lot missing.
0: So other than when you're, you know, adjusting your hearing aids, uh, do you listen to music much in the home? Not much. And if you had to look back at your career, what two albums are you most proud of?
3: I think the second Mexican record, Mas Canciones. And the last record I made, I think, was called. That was not the last record I made. It was called Winter Light.
0: And you know, you encountered a lot in your career, people saying no, and you ended up. You know, how to tell me how those battles went down with the record company?
3: Well, they thought it was a mistake career-wise to do them, and I said I'm doing them in any way, and because I couldn't hear them, I could just hear the music. And to their credit, people like Joe Smith are really old-fashioned record men. They knew how to sell records. And they stepped up and promoted it. And the same way with Peter Asher. He couldn't have cared less about Mexican music. He never heard it. I said, I just have to do this. And he put his head to to the, put his shoulder to the wheel and did it. He did a really good job. He didn't try to get in my way.
0: And you talk about Peter Asher. You've worked with multiple producers. What's the key to a good producer?
3: I think they work in so many different ways. Sometimes the producer controls the material and the way it's approached. Sometimes the artist does. And Sometimes the backing band does. And it's a lot of subtle nuance of trade-offs. I think a producer is someone who listens and makes carefully considered suggestions.
0: Now, the rage today is people selling their publishing. Uh, You only wrote a handful of songs. You know, not even a handful. Right. A a lot of uh, the money is in publishing. So, how, you know, were the record companies honest with you and paying you royalties back in the day? I don't know. Let me put it differently How are you doing financially?
3: Well, that's a pretty fucking personal question, but I'm doing fine. I sold my catalog.
0: You you sold the catalog. I was
3: doing fine before that. I had a good business manager and I didn't spend a lot of money.
0: So you sold your royalties and all your records.
3: Yeah. How long ago did you do that? Oh, I don't know, a year ago, maybe. It's based on 20 years of earnings. He'll he'll recoup his investment in twenty years. I won't be here in twenty years, so I don't care. I just need to have the money now.
0: Did you buy or do anything uh, that you now that you had this money, or did you just bank it?
3: Well, I was going to buy a house, but I saw what the prices were up here, and I nearly fainted. I'm still on the floor.
0: Okay, and what do you want people to get out of this book? Feels like home
3: there's just another side to Mexico to that part of Mexico. And that part has been a cohesive, singular piece of real estate since before um, Arizona was before Mexico was Arizona, and that they should recognize what what similarities there are between themselves and the people south of the border.
0: and you had uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, unfortunately, two are no longer with us. Was there pressure when you had this huge success to take care of the rest of your family financially?
3: Well, it changed the dynamic. I didn't care my family financially. They were all gainfully employed.
0: Well, I mean, it's tough that you were so successful. Did your siblings revel in your success, or were they jealous?
3: Well, they didn't want to be professional singers that went on the road. My brother was the chief of police of Tucson. He liked his job just fine. My sister had five kids. She wanted to be a housewife.
0: And did you help support them? Not really. Okay, because a lot of people become successful and their family starts asking them for money. That wasn't your experience.
3: Well, not particularly.
0: If I want to go for good Mexican food in L.A., where should I go? I don't know. I haven't lived in L.A. for 20 years. Well, you know, can you mention any Mexican restaurants or do we really have to go to Tucson to get the kind of food that you like?
3: If you want good Mexican food, wait till January. Lucy's El Adobe is reopening with the original owner and the original recipes. It's going to be a great place to eat. just like it was in the 70s.
0: What did you used to order at Lucy's?
3: Green enchiladas. Really? Maybe with tomatillo.
0: And are you a uh, meat eater or not?
3: I eat meat if I have to.
0: Okay, Linda, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and my audience. Once again, Linda Ronstadt has a new book, Feels Like Home, a song for the Sonoran Borderlands. And so thanks again, Linda. Thank you so much. Bye. Till next time, this is Bob Lefstin's.
2: That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible
1: American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause.